Welcome back to Curbside Consults, where we break down practice-changing research from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Angela Castellanos, Editorial Fellow at the NEJM. On today's episode, we will be taking a closer look at the medical literature behind e-cigarettes, the growing prevalence, health effects, and use among adults and adolescents. The rise of e-cigarette use in the last five years has brought with it new vocabulary and a new set of challenges in identifying and addressing substance use in the primary care office. In addition to the usual smoking and alcohol consumption screening questions, now physicians for adults and kids alike must ask about vaping or juuling. And that USB drive in your patient's pocket may not be a USB drive after all. Today we're going to discuss some of the basics of e-cigarettes and what evidence-based recommendations we can make to patients and families. Joining me today is Dr. Jonathan Winnikoff. He's a professor of pediatrics at Mass General Hospital for Children. Dr. Winnikoff is also the director of pediatric research at the Tobacco Research and Treatment Center at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here today. Awesome. So today we're going to discuss the use of e-cigarettes among adults for smoking cessation. We're going to talk about key clinical approaches to addressing the teen vaping epidemic and policy and advocacy approaches at the community level to help lower initiation and use of these products. All right. So Dr. Winnikoff, many people who are listening, they're residents, they're med students, they might be early attendings. We've all heard about e-cigarettes. So I just wanted to start basic. First of all, so what is an e-cigarette and what's in it? I hear about vaping as well. Is this the same thing? Well, terms like vaping and vapor imply water vapor, but what these products emit is far from water. Um, an e-cigarette is a device with a heating element that aerosolizes liquid nicotine, flavors, and other chemicals found in the e-juice. And uh, users inhale this aerosol deep into their lungs and then exhale what their respiratory system doesn't totally absorb. And unlike FDA-approved forms of nicotine, like gum or nicotine patch, which give the full dose of nicotine to the user themselves, bystanders can be exposed to the chemicals in e-cigarettes through inhalation, as well as ingestion or dermal absorption from contaminated surfaces. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about how an e-cigarette can also emit a substance that other bystanders can also take in as well. So it's an interesting distinction. So when I think of e-cigarettes, I think about them in relation to conventional or combustible cigarettes. I'm trying to draw analogies between the two. Um, so are e-cigarettes safer than conventional cigarettes? And now that I'm asking that question, I ask myself, is this even the right way to think about e-cigarettes? Well, thinking about it from just a comparison of the toxins themselves, for a given dose of nicotine for the users, there's no question that e-cigarettes have lower doses of harmful chemicals um, than conventional cigarettes. E-cigarette aerosols contain fewer toxic chemicals than the mix of 7,000 chemicals in the smoke from regular cigarettes. But the aerosol is not harmless, and that's the important distinction. Um, just like tobacco cigarettes, e-cigarettes contain nicotine as well as other toxins such as carcinogens and heavy metals. E-cigarettes could potentially be beneficial to adult smokers as a smoking cessation tool, but their use hasn't been approved by the FDA for this purpose. Even though they're safer than conventional cigarettes, they're not safe products. They can still perpetuate addiction. They still cause inflammation in the lungs and expose bystanders to toxic chemicals and nicotine. And according to the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, there's some evidence for increased asthma exacerbations among adolescents after e-cigarette use. So they're not safe for use for anyone who's not already addicted to combusted tobacco. I want to emphasize that the only safe thing for non-users of tobacco products to breathe is clean air. So in answer to your initial question, should we be comparing e-cigarettes to conventional cigarettes? The answer is no. The comparison for e-cigarettes should be clean air. 
And when thinking about the e-cigarette, I think it's helpful to think about it like a medication or a treatment that physicians use, a treatment that may have some side effects. You can think about it like methadone. For example, we can all agree that methadone is safer than IV heroin use, and it's useful to treating opioid dependence. Great. But there's a difference between saying that methadone is useful and saying that methadone is safe. So luckily, methadone requires a prescription. That's an important barrier to other people using methadone who aren't already addicted to opioids. E-cigarettes do not require prescription. And along those lines, we'd never say that, for example, flavored methadone should be sold in stores at the local level. So as healthcare professionals, we have to be careful about promoting products that don't have the protection of prescriptions. I think that's a really interesting analogy and point that you're drawing there, which is that e-cigarettes, to think of them as a medication. Um, residents, medical students, we're trained to think about medications. We think about side effects. We think about close follow-up when we start patients on new medications. And when you think about an e-cigarette as a medication, you can think about it in that context and have that same approach as well. So I think that's a really helpful analogy. So thinking about now, so we're using our, our medication, our e-cigarette, um, and we're in the clinic. So let's say we have a patient with a 15-year smoking history, and they come into our office. She's tried nicotine patches. She's tried quitting cold turkey. Obviously motivated, but she continues to smoke a pack a day. Uh, she's heard about e-cigarettes, and she's wondering if she should use them to try to quit smoking. Um, what are our evidence-based recommendations? What can we tell her in the clinic? Here's an example of approaching the e-cigarette as a medication we can use to treat a problem, in this case, smoking addiction. So there was a recent randomized controlled trial in the New England Journal of Medicine investigating the use of e-cigarettes for smoking cessation, published in January 2019. In this trial, 884 adults attending UK National Health Service Stop Smoking Services were randomly assigned to either electronic cigarettes or nicotine replacement products of the participant's choice. Treatment included weekly behavioral support for at least four weeks. The primary outcome was sustained abstinence for a year, validated with a biochemical test at the final visit. And this is a very standard tobacco control type of trial. So how did e-cigarettes do? Among 884 participants, one-year absence rate was 18% in the e-cigarette group compared to 9.9% in the nicotine replacement group, and that was highly significant. So the authors conclude that e-cigarettes were more effective for smoking cessation than nicotine replacement therapy in this particular randomized controlled trial when used in conjunction with behavioral supports. Okay. Great, but there are a few uh, limitations things that are noteworthy that we sure. want to consider along with these data. Mm -hmm. Among those who quit smoking, 80% of those in the e-cigarette group continued to use the e-cigarettes mm -hmm. compared to use of nicotine replacement products where only 9% in that group continued to use that form of nicotine replacement. So additionally, what the study didn't highlight is the number of non-abstainers or people who continued smoking in the e-cigarette group who also continued to use e-cigarettes. So we know that the absence rate in the e-cigarette group was 18%. We also know, though, that about 40% of people in the e-cigarette group were using the assigned product at a year. So approximately 25% of the people who continued to smoke conventional cigarettes ended up as dual users mm. of both products. That has implications for health, as the disease mechanisms for the two products may be quite different. Hmm. leading to increased long-term risks for dual users. So, for example, e-cigarette flavors, which were popular among e-cigarette users in the study, can cause inflammation of the airways. 
and might make the use of concurrent combusted tobacco even more carcinogenic. And then we have some other important uh, limitations of the study that need to be considered. So for generalizability, the products tested in this trial are not the dominant products in the United States, and the e-cigarettes used in the study actually have less nicotine than the market share leaders in the U.S. So the high nicotine products that dominate the U.S. market are actually banned in the European Union. Oh, wow. Yeah, and in the United Kingdom where the trial was conducted. And so also thinking about other therapies for um, smoking cessation, this trial really only looks at e-cigarettes and nicotine replacement therapy like lozenges, patches, gums. I know that there are other medications you can use for smoking cessation. How does it fit into the conversation around this trial? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that because um, the study didn't compare some of the most effective FDA-approved medications. So, for example, the study didn't look at varenicline and bupropion. These medications, especially when used in combination with nicotine replacement therapy, have demonstrated higher quit rates than what was found in this study. So the study doesn't compare e-cigarettes to these other effective smoking cessation treatments. I see. And kind of to the point that you were talking about earlier, so 80% of the people who abstained in the e-cigarette group, so who were able to quit, continued using e-cigarettes, which, and what we're seeing here is really how addictive this potential treatment can be. Exactly. The vast majority of those who do manage to quit combusted tobacco completely using e-cigarettes would be trading one addiction for another. And in the short term, we know that e-cigarettes cause inflammation and have harmful health effects. But there's also a financial cost. A lot of people don't think about that. Unlike nicotine replacement therapy, like gum or patch, that's prescribed and covered by insurance, the cost of this potential treatment, the e-cigarette, is borne by the user. And if we do some simple math, a -a pack-a-day smoker who switches to e-cigarettes may need about a pod a day, which costs $4 at the moment or approximately $1,500 a year for that addicted user. For patients and families who are already having trouble making ends meet, the long-term effect of a $1,500 per year expenditure may increase the cycle of poverty for those families. And for those who end up as dual users, the cost of using both products may be greater than for the single combusted tobacco product because e-cigarettes are often used in locations where combusted tobacco is prohibited. I see. Okay. So with that discussion, even though e-cigarettes may have worked, shown in the study to be more effective than nicotine replacement therapy, along with behavioral support as well, but knowing that many abstainers continued to use e-cigarettes, and this study didn't compare e-cigarettes to another FDA-approved and effective smoking cessation medication that we have, what do we do in the clinic then with these trial results? What conclusions can we draw from these data? Ugh, I knew you were going to ask me that. So it really depends on the patient in front of you. So I think it's helpful. Maybe we can go through a couple of scenarios. So in a case where you have a combusted tobacco user who is really a clean slate and has never tried any nicotine replacement therapy, there we're sticking with the FDA-approved medication. This is for the current combusted tobacco user. Maximize the use of FDA-approved nicotine with two forms. Always recommend two forms. Nicotine patch for the baseline craving plus either gum or lozenge. And then consider adding in bupropion if the smoker is willing to try it or if two forms of nicotine replacement therapy have been used in combination with behavioral counseling without success in the past. So even for those who failed using the traditional therapy, try a different round of something else Mm -hmm. before we would go into the electronic cigarette world. 
On the other hand, sometimes we are at a last resort situation for patients. And this really does happen. You know, if everything else has failed the patient and they want to try something and we need to try something as their doctor, we could consider using electronic cigarettes as a bridge to getting off of all tobacco products. I mean, you could imagine it as kind of an algorithm. Then there's always the instance when a patient walks into your clinic knowing what approach they want to try. For the person who wants to try e-cigarettes, it really may be best to go with their own desires because that's the tenant of patient care. If you can really work with patients, uh, if they believe something will be successful, chances are you'll have better success with it. So then fine, let's go on to e-cigarettes, but use it in conjunction with other therapies. Importantly, we want to treat it like a therapy. We don't want to use e-cigarettes anywhere where regular cigarettes are prohibited or where you wouldn't usually smoke. So don't use e-cigarettes in front of children or in your home, for example. We want people to maximize use of the safer FDA-approved products, the patch and gum, where cigarettes are prohibited. E-cigarettes then become the patient's last resort treatment to avoid ever using combusted tobacco. This approach keeps tobacco products segmented and denormalized. Now, for dual users or patients who come to you who are using e-cigarettes and combusted tobacco already, and that's quite a common scenario, here we have to recognize the importance of getting off of the most harmful product, combusted tobacco, while offering nicotine replacement therapy, again in two forms, as the safest option to cut down on all combusted tobacco as well as the e-cigarette. And then for e-cigarette-only users, Offer nicotine replacement in two forms so that the user of e-cigarettes has a safer option for cutting down. Again, emphasize not exposing household members in the home, car, or other locations. So with these patients, emphasize the importance of never using any form of combusted tobacco ever. I think one thing I want to just highlight of what you said that um, struck me is that when I think about people using electronic cigarettes, you think about them using them in front of their friends in restaurants, and nobody is kind of coughing, walking away from them, giving them that social cue of this is not acceptable. But what you've emphasized is really talking to patients, using it as a therapy, and not using it as a replacement in a place where you wouldn't normally smoke. So really denormalizing the use of a cigarette, electronic or otherwise, in all these places where we wouldn't normally use cigarettes. I think that's a really important point that you bring out there. Exactly. So I think this is a good transition into our next topic. So we've talked about e-cigarette use among adults and how it can potentially be used in smoking cessation, but we kind of want to address the elephant in the room here and talk about the emerging epidemic use of e-cigarettes among adolescents in the U.S. So Dr. Winnikoff, you're an expert in this field. What can you tell us about adolescent use of e-cigarettes in the U.S. right now? Well, a recent observational study published earlier this year in the New England Journal of Medicine looked at adolescent vaping and nicotine use in 2017 and 2018. They used survey data from an annual survey of representative samples of teens in 8th, 10th, and 12th grades with a total of nearly 14,000 respondents. So this survey found a sharp increase in the prevalence of vaping among teens from 2017 to 2018. And using this as a representative sample, their rates estimate about 1.3 million additional adolescents who vaped in 2018 compared to 2017. So that's over a million teenagers in one year who have tried, experimented, begun to use these products. I've probably encountered teenagers who've used this, certainly. So what can I, as a clinician, what can other residents, talking to patients and families, what can we tell them about e-cigarettes? 
Well, I just want to clarify in that study, that wasn't just ever triers of e-cigarettes. Those are now current users okay. of e-cigarettes. And in terms of the addictive nature, uh, I think it's important to talk about that. Yeah. We used to think that about one Juul pod contained the equivalent nicotine levels of a pack of cigarettes. That in itself seems startling. But a recent study in the Journal of Tobacco Control in February of this year suggests that this amount may be even higher. So if you compare a teen smoking combustible cigarettes versus a teen vaping, the amount of nicotine exposure for those using e-cigarettes are higher since they can use e-cigarettes more frequently in indoor contexts and without any negative feedback from inhalation. For a combusted cigarette, you have to experience quite an aversive reaction. Your brain is telling you, don't inhale this smoke into your lung. That doesn't exist for Mm. the vape products that are out there now. And then, of course, there's the existence of flavors in the retail environment, which is extremely enticing to kids. About 85% of kids say that they initiate e-cigarettes because of the flavors. And just as an aside, um, before we go on, Dr. Winnikoff did bring in some products for us to take a look at here, and he handed me one of the, I think it's, it's a pod, is that right? Yeah. And told me to smell it, and it smelled exactly like maple syrup. It was a creme brulee flavor in this pod that looks like a highlighter, um, a bright blue highlighter, and it just smelled exactly like maple syrup. So it's just another example of these flavors that are very appealing to kids and very appealing, frankly, to adults as well. A lot of people think that the epidemic in teen use is because of the marketing and the flavors, and that's certainly a component of Mm -hmm. it. And when you think about Juul, for example, they're marketed with coverings called skins. Mm -hmm. So for most 55-year-old smokers, they're not thinking of, they might not even know what a skin is. Um, Skins are really a term that was developed in video games as costumes. And so this really appeals to kids. It speaks to kids put your own skin on your pod. It gives kids a sense of identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's exactly what the tobacco industry did with Combusted. We keep focusing on nicotine because nicotine itself is not safe for the developing brain. It's incredibly addictive, and addiction can happen in as little as half a pod. Nicotine also potentiates the effects of other drugs. So again, we come back to the idea, though, that we're not comparing e-cigarettes to conventional cigarettes when it comes to adolescence. We should be comparing e-cigarettes to clean air. Exposure to e-cigarettes means exposure to ultrafine particles and flavoring chemicals that can cause pulmonary inflammation. Now, while we don't know the long-term effects of that inflammation, in the short term, we know it can lead to asthma exacerbations, and case reports of eosinophilic pneumonitis. We also don't know to what extent this inflammation potentiates the effects of carcinogens already present in the aerosol. That's certainly true. And then for adolescents, there's this other really important point that if you are addicted to nicotine, you're much more likely to progress to another nicotine product. So the studies are looking like a threefold or more risk of progressing to combusted tobacco products if you've used an electronic device. Oh, okay. So there I think we have some concrete facts to tell families, some potential for harm that obviously patients and families want to avoid for their kids. Um, But it still seems like it might be difficult to approach the subject in the clinic. I know I can talk about e-cigarettes, but Maybe kids are calling it something else. Are they calling it juuling, vaping? How do you talk about this in the clinic with your patients? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, initially in my own clinical practice, I thought I was an amazing pediatrician. You know, I asked my adolescent patients if they smoked e-cigarettes and 100% were saying no. And this was a few years ago. I thought, wow, I must be doing something really right. And then I read a study where they had to change the way they were asking the patients questions about e-cigarettes because their rates were also very low, too low given the epidemiologic data. And so after I read that study, I began asking specifically about juuling or vaping. And this was just about a year and a half ago. And I found that a lot of my patients were juuling or knew someone who did. And so Juul wasn't really introduced until 2015. The epidemic took off in 2016, which is also around the time I started asking more specifically and using the correct clinical language. And that correct clinical language really just started in 2015, like you mentioned, so really not too long ago. Um, within the world of our medical training. So I'm a pediatrician, I'm a resident, I ask my patients about juuling, I use the right words, they'd say, yes, I juul, or I know someone that juuls, what do I, what do I tell them then? Well, I think the first thing to ask them once you establish that they're using is to ask some questions about their use, assess the patient's ability to stay off of it, and let them know that the craving lasts about seven minutes, suggest other methods to get over the cravings, like drinking water, exercising, these are classic tools and strategies in counseling for smoking cessation. Also look into quit lines and text-to-quit programs. Another important tool is to give teens refusal skills. So if a child has any wheezing or asthma at all, really any respiratory symptoms, mm -hmm. feel free to use yourself or the doctor as an excuse for them to say no. You could even have a little practice dialogue. My doctor says that that's not an option for me. And practice that out with them a little bit. So giving them the language to refuse in a socially acceptable way is really important, and kids might actually use that. Mm -hmm. So while we don't know much in this area of treatment, clinicians should be ready to incorporate the strategies that worked for smoking cessation, but also new programs and new strategies into their clinical practice as the science emerges. Okay. So I'm asking my uh, patient questions, and I'm concerned that they're addicted to the e-cigarettes. Can we use nicotine replacement therapies? What can we use to treat nicotine addiction in kids? So as we discussed, nicotine through nicotine replacement therapy means no exposure to the aerosol, which means no inflammation in the lungs. And that's a really important benefit to the mm -hmm. FDA-approved nicotine replacement therapy for kids. The idea is to get them off a harmful product. So getting them off e-cigarettes is protective for them. It protects them from getting suspended from school keeps them participating in sports. So preserving the protective factors, remaining in school, remain a good student, and then gradually we can work off the patch, gum, and lozenge, which are much easier to quit because they have a slower uptake and lower rate of rise of nicotine in the bloodstream. Okay, so what key clinical approaches can we use to help combat the initiation or use of e-cigarettes in our clinic? Well, start by delivering consistent health messaging on nicotine health harms on the developing brain and the harms of vaping. The Surgeon General's report discusses early nicotine use and the increased risk of anxiety, depression, and mood disorders, emphasize that there's no safe level of use because the potential for addiction is so high, and then treat underlying anxiety and ADHD with therapy and approved medications rather than waiting for adolescents to explore and self-medicate with products that are really all around them in school. I think this idea you bring up here of adolescents exploring um, Adolescence is a time for exploration. It's a time for experimentation. 
there's people that might think, oh, e-cigarette use is just another one of these things that adolescents are going to do. They're going to experiment. What can we say to those people? What kind of tools do we have for that? A lot of parents, a lot of adults see adolescent use and exploration of vape products as sort of a rite of passage, Mm -hmm. much like other risky behaviors. Uh, But there's a difference here. This experimentation creates a lifelong risk of addiction, so any use is really not okay. There's a frame shift that needs to happen. Instead of dismissing a child that is used a couple times as just harmless experimentation, clinicians really need to handle that as a clinical emergency with a high level of follow-up. So even just intermittent use can lead to addiction of these products. So if the child is not addicted, contract with them to abstain completely. Emphasize the message of, you just barely escaped. So I had a patient who was an 18-year-old young woman. I'd seen her for a couple weeks previously for e-cigarette addiction. She was really proud of herself that she had quit for a week. Mm. And I was feeling pretty good too, I'll tell you. Um, uh, Two weeks later, she comes back and she said, I couldn't do it. She'd gotten rid of all of her products. She was with her friends and said, I didn't even know what happened. I just did it. That's a classic for addiction. It was almost like an automatic behavior. In this case, we did decide to give her a nicotine lozenge. She didn't want the gum. She wanted the lozenge. We gave her a strategy and decided if she found herself in that situation again, she can use the lozenge. And, uh, you know, I've used this with the last five people I've treated. Mm -hmm. Three have been successful and have been able to stay off their vapes. Two have not. So it's not a guarantee. Uh, These kids are really highly addicted. One patient I had, 15 years old, who was up to almost two pods a day, needed two patches and gum for his addiction. Now, this isn't a typical case, Mm -hmm. but it's a very dramatic example of how addictive these products can be. And I'll tell you on that particular one, he's still vaping. So it can be just an issue that we have to constantly deal with in the clinic and stay with our patients and have close follow-up and follow them through this process. Yeah, and I think each child is a little puzzle mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their addiction and what they're into and what they're using and which products and what's going to help them the most. But listening to them, hearing what their thoughts are, uh, and really having close follow-up and treating this with the urgency that it demands is really important. Yeah, I think that's an important point. So with that said, we can talk to patients in the clinic. We can talk to the parents. Um, And that's one side of our role as clinicians is treating the patient in front of us. But I think we see this as an epidemic in the U.S. So how can clinicians advocate on a wider scale? Um, What are some approaches that you have seen in the community and at the state level to help lower adolescent initiation and use of these products? Where can we spend our time? I'm glad you asked that. I think one of the most effective strategies is raising the price of the products themselves by increasing taxes. This strategy lowers the likelihood that teens will initiate, and adolescents are much more sensitive to price increases than adults because they just don't have as much money as adults, and so a little price increase can actually make the difference between them purchasing something or not. The tobacco product industry, uh, Juul and other companies, have gotten away with flavoring e-cigarettes. Now, in 2009, there was a federal law banning flavors in cigarettes, but not e-cigarettes. Current tobacco control efforts, they're trying to close that loophole. Current efforts are focusing on banning flavors in all tobacco products, including the flavors mint and menthol. So those flavors in particular, mint and menthol, have been shown to be important in adolescent initiation and do make it harder for adult users and kids to ever quit. Hmm. And then there's raising the tobacco sales age to 21. 95% of all adult tobacco users initiate before the age of 21. 
And if you make it to the age of 21 as a non-tobacco user, you only have a 2% chance of ever becoming a smoker. So um, not all these bills for raising the tobacco sales age are created equal. It's important to include strong enforcement at the retail level with frequent compliance checks. These are effective strategies. Strong laws tend to emphasize compliance at the retail level, and industry-sponsored laws, in, by contrast, tend to punish kids for possession. Oh, okay. So to summarize, we can raise taxes, we can ban flavored products, and we can raise the sales age to 21. These are three key strategies where physicians can focus if they want to make a difference in their communities. Awesome. Thank you for giving us those options. So I feel like for our audience, we've talked about e-cigarettes as a medication. We've talked about it as a harmful substance and on the kind of public health population level as an epidemic. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. I want to bring out some key points for our listeners for our discussion today. So in terms of health effects, e-cigarettes deliver high concentrations of nicotine and a variable mix of other chemicals through the aerosolized liquid that the user inhales. While we don't have data on the long-term health effects, we know that these inhalants cause inflammation in the lungs, and we know nicotine, no matter how it's delivered, is highly addictive. E-cigarettes, unlike other nicotine replacement treatments such as gum, patch, or lozenge, expose bystanders to these negative health effects as well. And due to their highly addictive nature and harmful health effects to non-users, e-cigarettes, if considered by smokers in the context of smoking cessation, they should really be treated as a last resort. And they should be treated as an unapproved medication and part of a treatment plan to eventually come off all tobacco products and not as a safe long-term substitute for combusted cigarettes. So when talking to patients and families, it's important to ask specifically about juuling or vaping to get an accurate substance use history so we can really address this issue in the clinic. To help with the adolescent vaping epidemic and advocate for our patients, physicians should focus on approaches that raise tobacco taxes, ban flavored products, and raise sales age to 21. Again, Dr. Winnikoff, thank you so much for joining us today. I've learned so much from our conversation. Well, thank you for having me. Great. And thank you all for listening. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to Dr. Angela Chen and Dr. Amanda Fernandez, my co-editorial fellows at NEJM this year, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. Opie Hammondvik. As always, we love to hear your feedback. Please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Leave a message or review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Angela Castellanos, Editorial Fellow at the NEJM. Please join us next time for our next curbside consult.